You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Steve. Hi, Bob. Good How to see you. How are you doing? Good to see I, you. I, I'm doing fine. Good to see I you. Mean, We're both wearing the same kind of like, uh, what are they called? You know, that's Sweaters. a very handsome ensemble you have on. Yeah, yeah. I, this is the only thing like this I own, and I only got it recently. I'm not well, the kind of person to wear one of these. When you're I, super stylish, you only need one Is thing. it stylish? So I, I kind of fear that we, we would be deluding ourselves to think it's stylish. It, it's, a, it's one of these sweaters with a like a – a zipper that only goes down about eight inches. So you can't, it's a pullover and yet it has this zipper. I, I, I assume it's like an old man thing, but if I'm, if I'm being stylish, I, I'd be, I'd love to find that out. I just, no, not, nobody has told me it's not stylish. So well, I'm going yeah. to rest on that. Well, there's probably a lot of things you're doing that people have, uh, <laughs> have not told you the truth about Steve. Uh, anyway, let me, uh, introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the right show available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Steve Chapman, longtime columnist at the Chicago Tribune. Also, you're what? On the editorial board, you write editorials that are the voice of the newspaper sometimes. Is that true too? Uh, that's correct. And uh, uh, twice a week, more or less. I write two columns and two editorials a week. That's a, that's a fair amount, <clears throat> even in even in today's demanding uh, environment where they they expect journalists to work like rats on a treadmill. It's a superhuman workload that I carry. Bob. That you carry without uh, without complaint. Um, so we're going to talk about. Uh, Media, among other things, at least the way this started out was I noticed on Twitter that you were trashing not NPR as a whole, but one aspect of NPR. And I thought, hey, it'd be great to have a whole conversation just trashing NPR. (laughs) But then upon interrogating you via DM, I was somewhat saddened to find out that that indeed you weren't you, you didn't feel that NPR as an, as a whole should be burned to the ground. You just had specific issues. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll settle for that. Burn to the ground. No, not to the ground, not to the ground, just no. burn. Halfway no. no, actually I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of NPR and I have been since before I started at the Tribune, which was a long time ago. With um, reservations. And we're going to, we're going to talk about the reservations. We'll talk about the reservations, but I do think what I like about NPR is that they focus on the news. They don't spend all their time on people sitting around arguing, which is what True. most of the airtime on, on CNN these these days is people offering their opinions about what's going on in the world. That and is there true. was a time I mean if I mean, am I wrong or was there a time when CNN was much more news oriented than it was sort of commentary? Oh, no, and you're analysis? not wrong at all. When Ted Turner started it, they meant the name Cable News Network. It and was it seemed, just straight up. And it seemed like half their coverage was Christiana Amanpour in Bosnia uh, describing, you know, whatever carnage was going on there. I guess. <clears throat> now, they, they at some point, I don't think from the very beginning, but they branched into two channels. One was what? Headline News or Headline something? Headline News, which and was like basically a half hour. You know, it's kind of a standard Half hour news show like the like the evening news on. Although, have you looked at it lately? Networks. Have you looked at headline news I lately? Have, I have oh, bears no resemblance. I mean, it's it's just it's. Uh, I don't know if it's more tabloidy or what, but it's not. No, do you remember the headline news anchor woman with the very large eyes? <laughs> it's not ringing a bell. I can tell. Anyway, Marsha Ladendorf. I remember. I'm not sure if that was her name. Anyway. Uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm just strolling down memory lane here. Um, the, uh, okay. We're going to talk about other stuff too. 
maybe the state of the media in a more general sense, whether the newspaper, you would be an expert on that being a, a, a traditional newspaper guy. Um, we may get into the Houston Astros cheating scandal. Who knows? Uh, may get a little into impeachment. Uh, but let's start off complaining about NPR. Well, the the tweet that you you mentioned was not about NPR. It was about one particular NPR anchor. Let's let's get him. Go, Scott Simon, it's the weekend um, morning edition guy. Weekend morning edition. He's on Saturday mornings, um, and I, as a rule, I listen to NPR morning edition six days a week, and on Saturday I usually don't because I just find him impossible to bear and what's what i find impossible about him is what distinguishes him from everybody else on npr um which is normally when you're listening to npr you it doesn't really matter who's talking which anchor they have um they kind of all blend together they're not uh really obtrusive and prominent um, I, I can't, you know, I couldn't tell you the difference to between Mary Louise Kelly and Rachel Martin. Yeah, Ra- I mean, Rachel Martin and Louise Kelly. If, if one of them came on right now, I probably couldn't tell you which it was, even though well, I Scott, would recognize the voices. Even Scott Simon sounds a little like Robert Siegel, who is perhaps no longer doing uh, All Things Considered, but did for a very long time, if he's not. Uh, yeah, he did. And I, there are, there is, uh, yeah, Robert Siegel is the one who's sort of a little bit of an exception, but he doesn't bother me to the extent that Simon does it. I feel like the, like the Saturday weekend edition is the Scott Simon show. It's not weekend edition. It's, it's all about, you never forget that it's Scott Simon. He never lets you forget that it's him and that he has all these little, little, you know, uh, hobby horses and, and, uh, eccentricities. He never forgets to remind you that he's from Chicago, that he's a Cubs fan. Oh, he's from he, Chicago. Now, we, and, uh, do we have a, a local rivalry here? Like, no, he was gone long before, I, he was gone long before I got here. So, mm. um, you know, I, we're in different Did you at one point or, hope to follow in his footsteps, use Chicago <laughs> as a launch pad for an NPR career? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I do have a face for radio. But I never, oh, no. I don't, I don't particularly like talking for a living. I'm making an exception for you. You're doing but, well so far. Although uh, we would like to hear a little more of how you really feel about Scott Simon. I don't think we've really gotten well, to the. Okay, I, I find him, his ego, to be very pronounced. Um, his personality to be very self, uh, sort of dramatizing, and. Um, he just, he lets himself get in the way of every story. And that's, I think that's a cardinal sin for a journalist. See, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on him and I haven't, uh, done a lot of research for this. I hadn't thought of, there is something that I find a little annoying about him, but I hadn't thought of his ego being obtrusive in, in as obvious uh, a way as you're suggesting. I had thought it, I, I think of him as doing like a lot of subtle virtue signaling, a lot of sending signals about uh, what a, a, a warm and wonderful and right-minded person he is. You know what I mean? But doing oh, yeah. it subtly in terms of like what, que- what sensitive questions he asks and, and when, when he gets that kind of dramatic 
you know, empathetic tone in his voice mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, he's kind of hammy. He's a little, he is subtly hammy. And then, and then when it's time to laugh with the sports guy, you know, he's charming. Yeah, he has this very, oh, oh, oh. I don't know. Laugh that's <laughs> kind of exaggerated yeah. and not <laughs> that's very believable. good, actually. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, and did you know he lived in France? Or oh, he has a French well, wife, does, so he's, he's he makes, he makes references to that quite often. He's the Subtle kind ones, who would, but, isn't he? Yes. But if you, if you knew he lived in France, he, you would not fail to, to pick up on the reminders. I, uh, now I have a possibly larger grievance against NPR. Um, and I think it largely has to do with their foreign policy coverage. I mean, I got to admit they're in a tough spot, you know. They're like the highbrow national radio thing. They're supposed to act like they don't have an ideology, but they are basically liberal. It's not an easy job, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I would say all that. I would foreground all that. But, um, I, I, like I listen to the BBC, uh, sometimes in the morning. I listen to the news roundup. The BBC is just so much better. Uh, I mean, first of all, of course, they're more interested in the world broadly because they're over in Europe where there's a, you know, bunch of countries close together. And also they're the a legacy in a way of the British Empire. They have a, they, 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 there is an interest in a lot of nations, um, and true world affairs in a true sense, but also they're much better at, uh, it's a much more analytically efficient exercise. The, um, the reporting from the BBC, I mean, they really get to the crux of of the issues not unfailingly but at least they get more to the crux <laughs> that i want to hear about of of issues in uh world affairs than npr does and before i i actually have a, a scott simon example of this so you'll you're gonna lo love this um but do you before I do, do you does any of that resonate with you or do you have not not have views one way or the other? I, I don't I rarely hear the BBC. I, I mean, they have this partnership with NPR. So it's certain if I'm up early enough yeah. or late enough, then I can hear the BBC. But I, I don't usually get it. What I have noticed on the on the times that I've listened to it is their interviewers are are pretty fierce and challenging yeah. um, whatever the interviewee is saying. And I think that. That the, the, I think NPR has learned from that because their interviews have gotten much more, uh, they're much more inclined to challenge the person they're interviewing than they were, uh, 10, 15 years ago. And I think I, the, the, the departure of Bob Edwards, I think that was one of the reasons they let him go because they felt like he didn't interrogate people very vigorously and he would let them say things and just move on to the next question instead of saying, wait, that's not true. Or how but do you, you know that? Or was he more, was he the morning edition guy for a while? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was the guy they, he was there for a long time and they canned him and it was a big uproar. And, right. and I, I was, I was sorry that they'd let him go. And then I realized actually they knew what they were doing because the, the interviewers now, they are, they don't just, you know, move on to the next question when they hear something that's questionable. They say, wait a minute. Yeah, but do they do I don't that think th in a non-ideological way? I, yes, I, I think they do. Okay. Um, I think if you listen to the morning edition 
uh, people interview uh, politicians, they will challenge Democrats as well as Republicans. Okay. They'll say, well, this is what so-and-so says. Now, how do you respond to that? I mean, have you accounted for this? That's all to the good. Uh, and I that mean, is kind of in the BBC tradition. Um, I mean, I think in the choice of stories and so, sort of not not – I don't think they, I, I sort of their worldview. I think you're, you're right. They, they are, they are, uh, perceptibly liberal, but I don't think they let liberals get away with, yeah. with anything that they don't let conservatives get well, away with. Well, on foreign policy, part of my complaint is that they are perceptibly blobbish. They are just, you know, the foreign policy establishment is just feeding them their worldview and, uh, they don't challenge it in the way that at least I think it urgently um, needs to be challenged. I have an example of that, but, but my, my, my Scott Simon story is a little different. That was, this was just this last Saturday and it speaks to kind of, I would say a certain softness in their coverage, uh, a, 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 a kind of um, a sacrifice of kind of uh, analytical uh, clarity and, and kind of coldness for kind of like touchy feely stuff. And what it was, was it was when, remember when the, um, when Iran retaliated for the, uh, Soleimani assassination, they fired uh, ballistic missiles from Iran into a base in Iraq where American troops were. Um, they, uh, the, the initial reports were no American casualties. So we didn't have to retaliate. Um, and the story, uh, seemed to be that Iran had actually very uh, carefully avoided casualties. And in fact, by some accounts had sent word of the attack so that Americans could evacuate. They certainly did evacuate. They all went into a bomb shelter. So the story was, oh, it turns out there were casualties. Okay. And, uh, and so people started saying, wow, so we were this close to war because if some, one of these people had gotten killed, we probably would have had to, bomb Iran, right? And right. now it turned out that the casualties were all concussions. They were burst concussions. Uh, I think some were psychological trauma, but the physical casualties were concussions that just came from the force of the explosions. Right. Yeah. Some of the, so it, some of the, some of the people on the base were outside for, for some reason they had to stay outside the bunker. And I think there were 11 who, who, you know, reported some symptoms of brain injury, and they found that eight of them had had concussions. I think that's right. But it took, a, it took a couple of days at least for those symptoms to develop. So when this news came out, I, I had the kinds of questions I've alluded to, like, so wait, does this mean Iran um, didn't uh, take enough care to avoid, or was it blah? Was it, You know, I wanted to know what the implications were for kind of, A, what Iran's intentions were, and B, how close we came to war. Like, do we have to revise any of our thinking about that? Right. And Scott Simon spent the whole time interviewing doctors about, like, how will these people be, you know, how will these eight guys do? You know, it's like, right. Right. I'm sorry, with all due respect, look, I, I, you know, I'm glad I'm not one of them. I'm sorry it happened to them. But there are like eight concussions a second in America. I mean, this right. is not it isn't the magnitude of the injury that's at stake right. here. And that was just It's more the implications of the of the showdown with Iran. Yeah, that's what that, I wanted to eliminate. One of those one of those missiles had landed in a little different spot, right. we could be at war with Iran. Right. right so now. do we have to revise I mean, I would have liked just further elucidation of 
Uh, questions like, well, did Iran, do we think Iran gave us warning, blah, 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 blah. Did we come closer to war than we thought? There, there are a lot of, maybe it's just me, but that's the kind, kind of question I want to, wanted to answer. It certainly didn't seem to be worth spending much time exploring the prognosis for these eight people. They have concussions. Right, right. The, you know, but, we know what a concussion is. It, it's like, and, and maybe well, to get back to your point, go go ahead. Well, I mean, what? how, how many casualties have, they, have there been in Iraq and Iran non-fatal, I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan, like 250,000. Oh, yeah. Most um, of them are more serious and, than many of them more serious than, car- yeah, you know, and, it's like losing limbs. Yeah. And I mean, if you got off with a concussion, that, you know, that's that's serious, but it right. could be worse. But and, I think it, it seemed to me like an example of what I was talking about with Scott Simon uh, of a kind of a. You know when he goes into sensitive mode. Yeah, yeah, sort of the <laughs> let's let's talk about the 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 human side of this and not the fact exactly. that we Exactly. My and I, I maybe I'm reading too much into it. Uh he does have that kind of sugary voice that makes it easy to read yeah. the velvety uh, voice <laughs> that makes it easy to read sensitivity into right. him. But but it's also part of my critique of uh of NPR generally in uh, foreign policy, partly because I, I just think uh, concerns about um, getting emotive about uh, the fate of people has, I think, often gotten us into trouble lately. Uh, it, it is used to get us into wars. You know, look at these suffering people that maybe we can help. Well, it, it almost always turns out we make things worse. Well, um, and for, like in Libya. Yeah, Libya. I mean, that, um, the whole justification for our intervention was that Gaddafi was going to carry out a genocide against the people of this one town, which I, whose name I've forgotten. And it, it turns called, out it that's Misrata or something, maybe. Some, yeah, could maybe be. Not. And the, or, the, it or, turned out that the threat was not he was not actually threatening that. And as you said, we intervened and, well, we saved those people and we condemned Libya to what? what how many has it been? Eight years of, of chaos? Yeah. And now if we had confined our mission to actually protecting that one city, things might have been otherwise. You yeah. know, the U.N. mandate specified that and then had this vague language that um, the Obama administration took advantage of to turn it into a regime change operation. Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, you know, as long as we're over here, let's just go ahead and yeah. do some other stuff. So I don't know um, if there are other complaints uh, I mean, I think the 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 episode you're talking about. I think there was an interest in on both the part of both the Trump administration, uh, everybody in Congress, and Iran to go along with this pretense that the Iranians were not trying to kill Americans, yeah. and that's why they didn't. Because Trump didn't want to track back and say backtrack and say, "Oh, actually, they were trying to kill us, and so we now we have to go after them." And the Iranians didn't want to say. Right. You know, don't let us off the hook because we were actually trying to kill you. We just didn't accomplish it. Well, see, so that, everybody kind of what you just said it. itself would have been so much more illuminating than anything Scott Simon said. Right. Well, I mean, that, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah. It seems to me when when people when everybody's saying we're on the brink of war and then we don't have a war, at least yet, um, it's really worth uh, ongoing analysis of why we, we did or didn't have war. Were know? we just lucky, or yeah, did right. people do, do choose to do the right thing? Or I mean, especially since I thought the whole possibility that Iran had very carefully avoided casualties was kind of underreported. 
and the possibility that they had alerted us to the missiles was underreported. It, well, I except mean, that Trump Trump made a big deal out of that. That was kind of he seized on that to justify not doing anything in response. Well, he seized like, on the fact that they well, it, that's true. But on the other hand, the administration actually denies that Iran tipped them off. Yeah. Yeah. So I anyway, think, I all that. I'd have loved to hear about that in any event. What's the point of going into detail about the fact that the eight people with concussions are probably going to be more or less fine? I'm, I, I'm sorry. I hate to sound like this, a hard-hearted person. So um, now what else – should we talk about any other media stuff before – first of all, any other grievances against NPR? Um, no, I don't think so. Sure now. I mean, I would like to see more foreign coverage. I'd like to see them – interview more people who have sort of um, unorthodox views on foreign policy. I think the sort of people who who challenge kind of the whole basis of our our sort of global mission rarely get heard. Yeah. Um, if they do get heard at all, it's generally people from on the left rather than people who are sort of in favor of kind of a, a retrenchment and a more restrained, less interventionist foreign policy, but not an isolationist one. Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's a, a very influential school of, of thought among international relations scholars, um, called realism, mm -hmm. which, you know, rarely gets any attention. And they're mostly very, uh, skeptical about American military intervention in, you know, crisis spots and, uh, our, most of what we do in the Middle East. And, and, um, and, you know, you rarely hear that on NPR. Well, yeah, and it's an extension kind of of what I was talking about, NPR's kind of touchy-feeliness, you know, because um, realists, realists get accused of being hard-hearted the way I may be, you know, because they're, they're capable of saying things like, hey, uh, sorry about the people who may be threatened in this one Libyan city, but, you know, there are bigger issues at play. now." Um, I, my own view is that in, 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 realism, to, many realist arguments actually are ultimately humanitarian in the sense that they're arguing that in, lo, in the long term, you will do the most good for the most people by not intervening. But at the same time, there is often in realism uh, the you know, the need to explain why, notwithstanding the human suffering that it might seem like we could alleviate in the short run, we're not going to do anything. And, it, and, and I guess if you have a, a, any news network that makes a habit of illuminating the human suffering without bringing on the kinds of analysts who explain why we may need to resist the temptation to help these people, um, then you are, you know, biasing your coverage on balance toward a kind of interventionism. Right. Uh, that's that. true. Yeah. If you if you focus on the the if the the danger that's presented to people right now that you could potentially alleviate and you're not interviewing the people, you know, 10 years in the future who are going to be suffering the consequences of all this. Well, yeah, you're going to your bias is going to be for acting and not for restraining. Yeah. I mean, a, a good proxy for those people 10 years from now would be a realist analyst, but they don't right. interview many realists. They, no, they don't. They, they, because they take their cues from the blob, the foreign policy establishment, I, yeah. which is not welcomed realists. Well, I mean, two of the most uh, influential realist thinkers in in the American Academy are John Mearsheimer and Steve Walt. I've never heard either of them interviewed on NPR. Um, and I don't think it's just because they wrote a book about the Israel lobby, 
which you know got them a lot of blowback. Um, I mean, there are there are plenty of other realist scholars you could pick if if you want to avoid those two, but I can't remember. I, I literally can't remember a single one who's ever been interviewed. Well, you know, it's funny. Maybe Andrew Basevich. Basevich. Well, you know, there is this new think tank in Washington. The first, I wouldn't say it's explicitly re- realist. It's explicitly restraint oriented. It's, it's it, it wants the, to be very cautious. The John Quincy Institute. The Quincy Institute. So right. Basevich is for now the president, although he's we, kind of temporary. We go not in search of monsters to destroy. That's their yeah. That's, that's their credo. Their epigram. Um, yeah. The um, uh, and uh, and they have a, a, a little bit of a realist orientation. But, you know, it's funny. I'm almost sure I am accurate in recalling in the run up to the Iraq war, John Mearsheimer being on the PBS NewsHour, which was in probably called a Manila report or something. And um, I'm sorry, which which Iraq war are we talking about? Yeah, well, this is 2003. It's true that okay. we've, we've done more than one. But um. And he was, he was, or maybe it was right after the invasion. And he was like confidently predicting disaster. He was like confidently predicting we're going to regret this. And he was doing it so confidently. I thought, although I, I was, you know, publicly opposing the war, I thought that takes a lot of kind of nerve to make a prediction that strong. Now, fast forward to now. Do you see him? You know, you would think that the people who got it right would get to go on CNN or go on MP. Do you see him? No. Who do you see? You see almost without fail people who supported the war. You know, Mm -hmm. who's running the Atlantic? Jeffrey Goldberg. Who's, Mm -hmm. you know. Who's writing for the Washington Post op-ed page? Max Boot. Yeah, yeah. Rehabilitated via uh, the resistance, but we needn't get into that. Brett Stevens, for that matter. Oh, please. Let's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is starting to get painful. I mean, it's you we're, we're moving toward more and more nefarious people here. But you're right. I can't think of anybody who was right on the war who has uh, sort of been rewarded for being right. And there have been plenty of people who have not who have been rewarded despite being wrong. In fact, I, it's like it's you know, it's the, the one sin in Washington, that, the one sin in Washington they can't forgive is being right. It's not being wrong. Yeah, um, it really is an amazing uh, fact, and it's much commented on. I mean, actually, Steve Walt uh, wrote his last book partly about this, about why these foreign policy establishment is so screwed up, and he went into how the hell long, of good intentions. Yeah, the hell of good intentions. Yeah. yeah. Um. The uh. So now, did I first meet you at a lunch with Mike Kinsley? Sounds plausible in Washington. Because you we dropped- go back so. We go. We've had such a long and happy association that I've forgotten where it began. <laughs> I think but it yeah, was probably probably when I was at the New Republic in the with seventy eight to to eighty one. I left. I didn't realize you were actually at the New Republic. I was there from eighty eight to whatever. But uh, you were wait that so that was after Marty bought it. No, Marty- it was when yeah, it was when Marty bought it. I think in seventy five, seventy six, something like that. Yeah. I got there in 78. Kinsley was running it at that point. He was, I mean, he was sort of the managing editor. That was before he went to Harper's. We we should say say for our younger folks, Mike Kinsley is like, I think the greatest editor of his generation. I mean, he turned the new Republic into, and this is back when, uh, you know, it was possible to talk about a magazine having tremendous importance. And, 
And certainly by the time I got there, the New Republic was, I think it's safe to say, the hottest magazine in Washington. And that was his doing. And uh, But he wasn't at the New Republic when you got there. Yes, he was in 88. He hired me. He had me. gone back. Yeah, he went to Harper's. He edited Harper's and then got fired by, is it Robert MacArthur for um, – for departing from orthodoxy on for not being not emoting enough about the possibility of nuclear holocaust i he think he couldn't get along yeah he couldn't get along with macarthur yeah he, and i think it was the, the the jonathan the piece he wrote about jonathan shell's book on, fate on of nuclear the earth right right yeah. the fate of the earth about yeah. nuclear war um and it, um, and it was it was a hilarious takedown that kinsley did as as all of his takedowns are yeah he is he is so uh amazing and and anyway so if we are gonna reminisce about media i should tell you what happened to me yesterday i was on twitter and there was all this discussion about the new york times the weird new york times twin endorsement Mm -hmm. of um you know uh, warren and klobuchar and 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 the times had this uh this video of the various interviews they've done with the candidates have you seen any of their kind of edited interview videos No. Oh, they're interesting. I'll put off what I was going to say about the New Republic and the video of that I wound up watching for now. But um, the videos are interesting. Um, well, let me, let me just say this. Even though this is not going to run for a few days and, and the Times endorsement will be an old story by then. Do you have a theory of that? It was an odd thing to do. Do you have a theory of why the Times did it? Yeah, I do. Okay, um, what's your my, theory? My theory, and, uh, you know, I've participated in a lot of, uh, you know, editorial board meetings about endorsements. So I'm drawing on that experience and I'm not saying this has ever happened to us, but I think there's a temptation. um, There are two. I mean, I think what the times had was a problem. They had a favorite candidate, which is Klobuchar, who they don't think has much of a chance of, of winning. And they have another candidate who's much more plausible, Elizabeth Warren. And I think they didn't want to be, they didn't want to run the risk of being irrelevant to have to endorse Klobuchar. And a couple of weeks later, she gets, you know, basically wiped out in Iowa. Her candidacy is pretty much dead and they're stuck with this endorsement. And they have what are they going to do? Um, I think they wanted to kind of ensure that they would have some relevance to people's decisions. I mean, I, but I, I, I can't justify it. I think I think it's a big mistake. You you you. It's not an easy decision to make when you have this many candidates, when you don't know how how things are going to shake out when people actually start voting. Um, but, you know, that's that's your job. Your job is to make a choice. Tell voters who you think they should vote for. They can't vote for two people. So you need to give them one and you need to make the case for why that's the best one. And you run the risk. Yeah, you do run the risk of you, you endorse Klobuchar. You, maybe you're going to look irrelevant. You endorse Warren. Maybe you're going to, you really are not entirely happy with the candidate you got, but you know, you know, man up and, and make your choice. Yeah. I was kind of imagining a different scenario that they did it almost by process of elimination i mean right before they uh, the day before they announced or something i suddenly became sure they were going to endorse elizabeth warren and the um for me it was almost a process of elimination and it had to do with the fact that the times um 
They do. I think their their identity is a little wrapped up in identity politics. Sure. Does that make sense? Maybe more than I don't know if it's any more than the Washington Post, but I think it is. And the videos uh, that they did of interviewing the candidates are kind of relevant here. You should really watch one because they make a point of it, it's like one of those college videos where a college does the official video of its student body and the diversity is striking. Whenever you see seven people in a room, there's like an Asian American. You know, it's like it, it had some of that. Uh, quality. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you know it was the true Times editorial board. But anyway, uh, it, it it was. Uh, uh, there seemed to be a lot of emphasis on showing us who the who the kind of editors are who are who are nodding thoughtfully. Um, and but anyway, I I think also more specifically, the Times is uh, pretty associated with the Me Too thing. I mean, they broke the big story, and they followed the story, and they disciplined a reporter. Uh, who violated, you know, and, and, and anyway, all of this led me to think, okay, it can't be Joe Biden. Even though if you leave aside questions about his current cognitive capacity, he'd be fine with the times ideologically, more mm-hmm. or less, right? Right, sure. Uh, but it can't be him because he's just such an old white male, right? It's mm-hmm. just, it, they just, the current New York Times cannot do him. So he's out of the way. Bernie Sanders is out of the way. So, and Biden's number one in the polls. Well, who's number two? Bernie Sanders. Well, no, he's too far left for the times. And besides, there had just been this spat between him and Elizabeth Warren that had Me Too overtones in the sense of, are we going to believe the woman? Don't we always believe the woman? You know, are we going to yeah. disbelieve the woman? Are we going to side right. with the man? Right. I'm not sure the times can be seen as siding with the man. So even if, if, uh, and he is a, he is a white male. He is another white, white male. male. And, and at that moment was locked in conflict uh, with a female over a kind of a gender issue. He had allegedly yeah, yeah. said this, blah, 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 blah. So right. even if his ideology were, 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 were not beyond the pale, which it just about is for the times, I think, you'd have to rule him out. So he's gone. And then you get to Buttigieg, you know, going down the pole. And, and I mean, come on, the guy is just a mayor of like a pretty small town. And that's yep. it. And, and, yep. and, and that, that has come to the fore about it. I think more and more people are realizing, like, wait a second, we he made a first good impression, but seriously, you know, um, I don't think they could. Yeah, do if that. you were dean of admissions, you'd, you'd you'd definitely take him, but you know, he sure. has no he has no business in the presidency, right? And and the Times is it's inconsistent with the Times' sense of its own gravitas to endorse the mayor of South Bend for the presidency. So right. so then we're down to Warren. And 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 she's Well, Booker was still in the race at the time. Was he? I, uh, yeah, in fact, uh, somebody who watched the 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 sort of the final session where they actually cast their votes said that they they the four top candidates were Klobuchar, Warren, Booker and I forget the other one. Maybe Bernie. Um Oh, you'd hope, but Booker is so low in the polls. I mean, how you can't? I mean, you can't well, endorse I mean, a guy in fact, who's a 2%. He, and then he withdrew before they yeah. endorsed. So, so, so anyway, in my thinking, if they go down, if they if they just go in order of how they're polling and keep going down and just having to reject people, they have to reject these first three: Biden, Bernie, Buttigieg. They finally get down to Warren, and it's like, yeah, we could live with that. It's an identity politics endorsement. It's it's kind of implicitly a Me Too endorsement. I'm not saying they thought all of this, but I just mean, given what their identity is, they would be comfortable with that. 
And so yeah, it's I like, think, why go I think, lower? It turns out they did go lower and, 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 and threw somebody else in as well. But, um, I think they, they probably were, did kind of have, you know, consciously or not, uh, a real desire to, to endorse either, uh, a minority or a woman. I don't think this was the year that they wanted to endorse an old white male. Right. And the beauty of throwing Klobuchar is she's a woman. So it's like there's there's kind of a a statement there implicitly that I think they're comfortable with making. Right. What what statement? Well, uh, you know, uh, she's pragmatic. She's no, I mean, the statement just being two women, the idea that their first two choices are women. I think at some level there, there is some real comfort with that idea at the times. Is that I'm assuming know. there are going to be two winners in the Super Bowl <laughs> by decree of the New York Times. I wouldn't bet on that. Uh, the um, so uh, anyway, quickly. The um, it was a, a tweet in reference to the New York Times thing linked to this C-SPAN in 1986 C-SPAN had taped an editorial meeting of the New Republic. Have you ever seen this? I don't think so. It's worth it. It really – so I got there 18 months after this was done. I uh, I mean, I sat in on my first meeting. Oh, so I don't get to see the youthful Bob Wright. I'm afraid not. I I really haven't changed. Doing ideological battle. I haven't changed. I would say if you saw a picture of me in 1988, you would not be able to tell the difference. (laughs) (laughs) I always look like a 63-year-old man. Um, The uh, But – Oh God, it was so, it was actually emotionally powerful for me because this was the room where I endlessly sat in on these meetings. Um, and, uh, it was the same cast of characters. It was the same, almost all were the people who were there when I got really? there. Really? Yeah. And it, and you know, Mike Kinsley is like 35 or something at this Charles point. Charles Krauthammer, Leon Rieseltier. Leon, the, 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 Mickey Kaus was there. Uh, oh, wow. I'd forgotten Jacob Mickey Weisberg. Was- Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Dorothy Wickenden and Hulbert, it was just, uh, I woke up twice last night thinking about this. It no, really, I'm... well, it's like a powerful, it's like, I don't have much video from that time in my life. Right. And I sure. certainly don't, how many of us, uh, you know, this was just a recreation of an important place. Right. I mean, for, for seven months, I actually was acting editor when Mike was on sabbatical. So I was sitting in his chair for seven months and, that was a high intensity part of my life. But the um anyway, it also just took me back to the days of old media, which brings us to the Wither the Newspaper segment that you're in charge of. Wither the Newspaper, <laughs> Steve. Um it's Not, hard to be that's W H I. whichever one doesn't mean wasting away is the one I mean. The, the, I, I forget how you spell the two, but I mean I'm where not sure is the newspaper? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's obviously a tough environment for, for print newspapers. Um, you know, our subscriber, you know, the number of readers we have, the number of subscribers we have is, I think when I got to the Tribune in 1981, our Sunday circulation was 1.1 million. And it's probably, I mean, I haven't looked at the figures lately, but I would guess 250,000 now. Um, you know, we've, we've, the way we made money in the past was not on subscriptions. You mean the newspaper was pretty cheap. We delivered to, you know, we would deliver to places, you know, 200 miles from Chicago. We couldn't have made money on that. 
but you wanted the circulation for the advertisers because we where we made money was on help wanted ads, real estate ads, and car ads, mm-hmm. and all, all those went away with the internet. And nobody buys a newspaper to to find a house anymore, or an apartment, uh, or a job. Um, rarely even a car. I mean, you the Saturday papers usually have car ads, but. Uh, there are not a lot of sort of classified ads. So we don't, you know, we just, we, the money, all the money we used to make from advertising, not all of it, most of it's gone. So we have to make it up in subscribers and at a time when we're losing subscribers because people can read the news, you know, for free all in any, you know, in any number of sites. Um, you know, we, we should have had paywalls all along, I guess. Um, but I don't think we, you know, until until everybody is doing it, it's very dangerous for anybody to do it. Yeah, um, you you're doing an impressive job of hanging on. I mean, like like so many newspapers, your your you know uh, ownership changes, but you're now you're now part of a chain. Right? The, the Tribune Company also is, uh, or whatever it's called, owns the Baltimore Sun, the Daily, New York Daily News, right? Yeah, we've always owned a bunch of papers. Uh, Baltimore Sun, the Orlando Sentinel, uh, the Hartford Current. Um, I forget the others. But, and then we, we owned the Daily News and we sold it to Mort Zuckerman. And then we, a few years ago, we bought it back mm. from whoever owned it then. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, we've always had, I don't know, 10 or 12 papers in the, in the group. Um, and, and then we acquired the LA Times in, oh, mid 2000s. And then later sold them. They hated being part of the Tribune. Mm. Yeah. So I guess the two, I guess the papers the, that seem to be making a go of it are basically the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. The, the most obvious, that are most clearly the big papers that are most right. clearly making a go of it, right? I mean, they've all probably to some extent become more than national newspapers, but certainly they're national. Um, uh, and maybe there's only so much room in that, uh, in that niche. Um, do you, yeah, and, and the wall street journal has always had the advantage that people in business have to read it. They right. can expense it. And they've always had a very, uh, affluent subscriber base and they don't really care about the cost. And it was pretty easy for them to, to retain, you know, just, you know, to get digital subscribers to replace any print subscribers they lost. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the New York Times, nobody has the breadth of coverage, depth of coverage they have. That makes it, you know, they're, you know, the problem is that, you know, for most newspapers, what they offer news, the news they offer is a commodity. It's not particularly distinctive. You can find out what Trump said, um, you know, in any number of places, you don't have to subscribe to the Tribune to get it. Um, if you want to read, uh, you know, the, tri- the New York Times foreign correspondence, you know, their coverage from Egypt or, or Paris or Hong Kong, you know, you've got to buy the, buy the Times. Yeah. Uh, there are not many papers who can say that anymore. Yeah. So what's your view on whether this is a horrible thing or not? In other words, do you see in Chicago to the extent that the Tribune's resources don't permit it to do things it used to do, either in Chicago or in the 
uh, larger world. I'm sure there was a time when the Tribune had a bunch of foreign co- Oh, yeah, we probably had 10 foreign bureaus when I got here. We probably had that many domestic bureaus, um, and we don't have any of those anymore. Wow. We don't so, even have a, a Washington bureau, I don't believe. Uh, that's amazing. And, um, you know, we... We, you know, we subscribe to the New York Times, you know, their newswire and we use some of their stories. We have AP stuff, but we don't have, you know, I mean, we've, we've cut staff, you know, very dramatically in the last 10, 15 years. And there's just a lot of stuff we used to do that we don't do anymore. So do you see, uh, these functions being fulfilled by someone else? And I don't just mean the ones you described, but, you know, local coverage are, um, because there are people who say, yeah, the newspaper's dying, but, you know, other things will do what the newspaper did. What, what's your take on that? I think the news coverage suffers. I mean, I think you're better having, you know, correspondence from seven or eight or ten papers, news services covering events abroad or in uh, Atlanta or or San Francisco than if you have just two or three. You're just going to get more, you know, more viewpoints. You're going to find out things you wouldn't find otherwise, mm-hmm. you know. And I and I don't think anybody's really taking up the slack there. There's obviously a lot more commentary than there used to be. I mean, there's been a just an explosion of commentary in the last 30 years. And um, so if that's what you want, then, you know, you're living in a golden age. Um, but I, I, you know, whether that's a good thing or not, I think there's probably – you know, I think we probably have more commentary than than we really need compared, you know, relative to news coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm not talking about the Tribune. I'm talking about, you know, print media in general. And, yeah, a, go ahead. And I mean, the media in general. Yeah, it's a funny thing. The New York Times, uh, I mean, people think of the Internet as having decentralized power in a lot of ways. All these things spring up. But in a certain sense, the New York Times' influence is greater in some ways than it used to be because, I mean, it always considered itself the paper of record, but now there are just fewer rivals, I guess, for that position. Now, at the same time, there are these, all these little websites that can, that can challenge it around the fringes and so on. But, uh, you know, it, when people look for like a validator of, of a particular angle on a news story, like what is the real story here? There's just fewer sources um, to choose from. Do you think that's, isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so, uh, also, I got to say, I'm sorry that you're no longer in the building you were once in. I've been in the Chicago Tribune building. Uh, you, you can buy a luxury condo there now if you really like the place. <laughs> well, I don't know of any journalists who will be able to afford those, and that <laughs> includes me. Um so you want to, uh, in the time left, talk a little more about, unless you have something more to say about the state of media, do you have a grand theory or anything? I mean, are you on balance uh, down on this yeah, whole I'm, thing? Yeah, I'm fairly, I'm not terribly optimistic. Um, I mean, I think the Tribune does a lot with the resources we have now. I mean, I think, you know, most newspapers do. Um, they're still a vital institution in, you know, almost every community. Um, but they're not able to do as much as they used to be able to do. And, and, you know, the, you know, the, the, the losses and the stories we don't see, we don't ever hear about. Yeah. Um, and you're saying that does include the local, the local scene. 
I mean, we focus, I, you know, we're focused, you know, mostly on local stories, you know, state, regional stuff. Rather, you know, we're not, mm. I mean, our commentary, there's a lot of national commentary, but, you know, our reporters are, yeah, we're almost entirely well, it, uh, focused on. Is that stuff. job being done as well as it, ever, it was ever done, you think? I think it is. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, I mean, that's good. I think there are probably fewer resources for that even, but, um, that's kind of the focus. And I think we, we've, we've, you know, obviously we do a lot of great reporting at the local level. Mm-hmm. So, um, you want to talk a little about, uh, politics? You, you had, in our exchange, you had mentioned among the things you, you were, uh, interested in was, uh, Bernie's chances in Iowa. Do you have a, you have a take on that or, and Bernie's chances overall? Um, I, I, I'm not a fan of Bernie and I, my, I, I have this, you know, sinking feeling he's going to win Iowa. Yeah. But are you one of these people who always assumes that whatever you don't want to happen has happened, will happen? <laughs> and, and why would I be wrong to assume that, Bob, based on my experience? <laughs> Your entire life. Yeah. My entire life. Um, the, I think, you know, what Bernie has going for him in Iowa is he's been there before. Um, he's got a very enthusiastic, um, set of voters. Um, and in Iowa, it's really important the intensity of support, not just the breadth of support, because you got to get people to go out on a Monday night, middle of winter in Iowa, may have to travel miles from their homes, um, and spend several hours that they could be home watching a basketball game or, or knitting a sweater and, you know, try to talk your, you know, neighbors into voting for your candidate. And so it takes a big commitment. And I think the Bernie's people are more likely to have that commitment than, than anybody else who comes to mind, particularly Biden's. I mean, I think Biden's support is broader than Bernie's, but it's not as intense. And in, in Iowa, that can make all the difference. And, you know, people forget, I mean, who won the 1988 um, Republican caucuses in Iowa? Pat Robertson. What mm. was that about? Mm. It was well, about fervor. It was, about, makes it your was point. about evangelical Christians who really yeah. got revved up to, you know, elect Pat Robertson. Yeah. The, um, now I, I do gather. I learned this from listening to the uh, the DMZ, a show on blogging heads, with uh, Bat, Matt Lewis and Bill Shear. Bill said that uh, they have lowered the threshold to kind of participating in the political process. It's easier to do. I forget the details, but it takes slightly less strenuous effort to be to to participate in the caucus than it than it did last time around. Okay, well that's so, good to know. Yeah, I and, thought that would I thought that would cheer you up. Well, maybe that'll help help Biden. I'd prefer Biden to Bernie. Yeah, but don't you worry honestly about what is your what is your view on on Biden's uh, cognitive situation? I think <laughs> cognitively he's okay. Um, In what sense isn't he okay? <laughs> you know, I I don't think you should. I, you know, as as a rule, I don't think anybody much over seventy should should be president, should be elected president. I just think that's too old. I, I'm I, you know I'm on the record of saying that a long time ago, and I thought McCain was too old, um, and I think it's a mistake to elect somebody that who's going to be seventy eight years old yeah. when he takes office. And I, there are bigger mistakes you could make. 
You right. know, there are worse candidates you could choose. I mean, I, I would rather take my chances with an old Biden than an old Bernie. Um, I would probably rather take my chances with an old Biden than a somewhat younger Warren. Um, but that's but, ideological, know, right? That's ideological. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if you know candidates who were otherwise um, the same, I, I would prefer a younger candidate to an older one. And but I, I think I do think, I think Bernie is sharper intellectual. And, and when I say when I say cognitive, I don't mean that he has dementia or anything. I think judging by the rate at which I'm slowing down, <laughs> I will be when I'm 78, if I'm alive at all, in no better shape than Biden's. And I'm, I, you know, I, I, it's just that it's kind of like what you're saying. If you're in your late 70s and you're really going to be up to the demands, not just of being president, but participating in a two or three hour debate, and, and various other things, you've got to be kind of exceptional. Now, I actually think Bernie is exceptional. I think he's, for his age, pretty damn sharp, not quite as sharp as he once was, maybe. But I think Biden has, has uh, I mean, the thing about Biden is there's always been a kind of a diffuseness about him and uh, and a slightly erratic quality to his, like, train of thought. And yeah. maybe he's it's just that age magnifies that. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure he's any worse than he used to be. And I, I sort of think that Bernie's what passes for his uh, sort of cogency and mental acuity is just that he's, he's so rigid and dogmatic that he doesn't really have to sort through a lot of information to figure out what he thinks. Where I, I think Biden actually, you know, he, he, there's more thinking going on in Biden's brain than there is in Bernie's. The charitable way to put that would be to say that Bernie has firm convictions, but I don't suppose you want to put it that way. <laughs> he definitely has firm convictions, but, you know, any, any virtue can be carried to an extent that it becomes a fault. Yeah, I like Bernie. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not as far left as he is on domestic policy. I, I, I think he's more likely to do good on the foreign policy than front than most or all of them. And on the domestic policy front, let's face it, he's not going to get a lot of this stuff through Congress. It's not like, you, you know, it's not like you have to realistically worry about, uh, you know, two years from now, Americans having not having the ability to hang on to their private health insurance and having to sign on to Medicare for all. I just don't see that politically in the cards. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, the second worst thing that could happen to Bernie's nominated is that is that he wins. The worst thing that could happen is that he loses. And I think he he would have a much harder time winning an election than than some of the other candidates. Wait, say that again. I'm not sure I followed that. I, I I think he's I don't think he would be a strong candidate against Trump. I think compared oh. to to other candidates, he would be, uh, you know, it's, I don't think it's hard to run against a socialist in America. My view on that is that. In many ways, he is well positioned to run against Trump. He's first of all, he's um, he has. Some of what Trump had, but for very different reasons. Trump supporters look at Trump and go, well, he's not another fake politician. And the evidence is he's always saying this crazy shit that real politicians don't say. Right. Bernie, I think you, a lot of people react to rightly the same way. He's not just another fake politician. As you said, he has convictions and, you, and it shows. It shows. Mm -hmm. He's not sitting up there calculating like what he thinks you want him to say. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. Ideologically, he has something in common with Trump. He's an economic nationalist. Um, foreign policy, he sounds a little like Trump sounds, although Trump doesn't always act the way he sounds on foreign policy. So I, I think that part is okay. And I think, it, God, you know, 
um, in these, these days, I'm not sure the label socialist is a killer. What I think is a killer for Bernie in the general, if he doesn't change this, is what I alluded to. If he sticks with his health care proposal to the, you know, even to the point of saying you will have to give up your private health insurance, I think that's a killer. If they can run the attack ad that says he will make you give up your private health insurance, even if you like it, for an untested program. And he will raise your taxes to do it because he, unlike Warren, has acknowledged that. Yeah, that could hurt, too. But I just think having to give up your insurance is just a I think that in itself is a poison pill. And and he probably wouldn't change that. So maybe he is toast in the general. But um, I, my view of people's view, uh, you know, my view of the American general American attitude about health care is we hate what we have and you better not change it. Yeah. Yeah. Except give us make it. Cheaper we assume that it, we assume. But we assume that any change is going to be a bad one. Yeah. No, I think even even Obamacare, which is relatively modest, ran into that. Uh, concern. So who do you think is the most uh, is the strongest candidate against Trump? You think Biden is? I think Biden would be a pretty strong candidate. Yeah, Uh, I think Klobuchar would be a good candidate. I guess. I don't know. She's got to do something about the shaking hair, though, don't you think? You know, I don't I don't I've never noticed. I've heard people mention it. It's all I see when she talks. It's gotten better. In the last debate, the the shake had been reduced by, I don't know, 10, 20 percent. She's definitely working on it. Whatever hairspray you use that keeps your hair from shaking, I think you need to send her a a can. (laughs) Have you noticed that mine hasn't shaken the whole time? It does not shake. Mine doesn't either. My hair is buttery soft. Oh, well, (laughs) my 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 scalp is buttery soft. (laughs) Well, I guess we've reached the point we can end on. Um, uh, anything else you want to say about anything? No, we didn't get to talk about the Astros. Well, but. bring it on. You know, Houston Astros, cheaters, cheaters never win, cheaters never win, but they did win the World they Series. They did win, while cheating, but they're disgraced, and they'll, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a taint attached to that name for the rest of, as long as the franchise is in existence. Um and what about those patriots? Do you think it's tainted them, you know, the various forms of cheating they've engaged it, in? Well, Bill Belichick. It, it, it was bad, but, you know, it, I don't know that it was quite as bad. And I, it wasn't it wasn't something the whole team knew about. Well, OK, you know, but like the, the, the use of I mean, like the deflated footballs. Um, yeah, but also they did do something a little more now. You know, the Astros, for people who haven't been paying attention, were – if you're not baseball fans, you should know that catchers send signals to pitchers about which pitch to throw next. If you're the using, batter – Using fingers. Using fingers. And if One, you two, know, three fingers. You know. If you're the – yeah. And, 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 and here's what's funny. It's considered legit. Like if the offensive team has a runner on second who – can pick up on the signals and somehow relay them to the batter. That's considered legit. Right. right What's not right. considered legit is to like use technology, have a camera in your home stadium so that right. every visiting team uh, is, is, you know, subject to like a CIA level analysis of their signaling system. And you somehow relay that to the batter, which they did in this case by banging on a trash can, uh, moving from high tech to low. Um <laughs> That's considered much lower tech than that. That's considered not legit. Although we now know that one of the most famous home runs in the history of baseball, shot heard around the world, 
in either 51 yeah, yeah. or 53. That was a guy with binoculars. And that was abetted by to the batter. a guy in the center He's field. He's frozen on me, so. Yeah. Are you I, there? I, am, I can't hear you. You can't hear me, yeah. So Now I can hear you. Now you can hear me. And the virtue yeah. of your recording this locally and my recording it locally is that that's, this will all uh, work out. That'll People will be out. able to hear everything we said, including can you hear me? Um, right. So uh, anyway, you're down on the Astros. I'm down on the Astros, and I'm down on Jessica Mendoza, who was one of my favorite sportscasters since she started doing ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. Um, she was the first woman they'd had you know, on Sunday Night Baseball, part of the regular baseball broadcast. And Wait, I you're going to was... complain about the woman who broke the gender barrier in like ESPN baseball? Well, it, baseball? It's, the, it's the people you admire who disappoint you, who you have the strongest feelings about, right? I mean, Alex Rodriguez was in the booth last summer season, and I can't stand him. Can't stand him on any number of levels, but I didn't. I, he never. I never felt disillusioned by Alex Rodriguez because I never admired him. You never thought he wasn't using steroids in the first place. No, I always thought he was. He was, you know, a bad guy. And Jessica Mendoza, I, I had very high opinion of, and she she actually attacked the. Oakland A's pitcher who broke the story, who told a couple of reporters about when he had been on the Astros, what they were doing, because uh-huh. he he decided, you know, this needs to come out. It's not legitimate the way they're conducting themselves, and somebody needs to, you know, uncover the truth. And and instead of um, trashing the Astros for cheating, she trashed Mike Fires for for revealing that they were cheating. And, and I just will, thought you will not forgive her. Uh, not not without you know some contrition on her. Has part. she sought your forgiveness? Has she no, called she's you? not. She did issue a statement which was kind of a mealy mouthed, you know. Yes, I'm against cheating in baseball. I just wish it had come about in a different way. Anyway, it was pretty. It was pretty pathetic. She the, also has. She also is you know has a has a some sort of a, uh, affiliation with the New York Mets. She's some sort of advisor, ah. which is kind of an odd thing for an ESPN broadcaster to do and sort of say. dubious on its face. But um, so that may have been, you know, part of part of her motive. I don't know. Um, it was disappointing. And was the whistleblower, you think he was motivated by uh, high-minded ideals? Well, I don't know. Maybe I mean, he was, it wasn't some petty grievance. I mean, don't you no, think it's possible couple, he, there were people uh, that he had not liked when he was at the Astros? Oh, sure. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But nobody else had the nerve to to reveal it, and he did. And you know, whatever his motives, that you know, that took some some courage. And I'm you know, I'm sure he 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 got he'll get some grief from his fellow players, uh, you know, on other teams if not his. Yeah. Well, that's the price you pay if you're a whistleblower, and you can't just. Uh, and you can't maintain your anonymity. Uh, I, I, my wife and I just saw a really interesting play that's no longer running in in uh, New York called "Is This a Room?" Have you ever heard about this? It, it's yeah. it's they took you know reality winner the whistleblower uh, who went got sentenced to five years in jail leaked oh, right. uh, leaked the thing to the Intercept. The FBI had recorded her interrogation, which they did at her house. They just showed up and said, "Hey, we have a search warrant." She's freaking out. They did the the uh, interrogation there. And she, you know, took, I don't know how long, within half an hour or so, she had caved and admitted she did it. They did a play that consists of an exact 
it's completely faithful to the to the tape recording of this down to the last cough and stammer. Really? Wow. Yeah. And now they, they took liberties in terms of where the people were. It would have been a little too boring to have them just sitting on the floor, which they were, because oddly she has no furniture in her house. Um, but uh, so people kind of walked around and that was a little stylized, but it was it was just it was just fascinating to me. Because you knew it was all true, this was exactly how it proceeded. These were exactly the techniques they used to like break her down, and it was just it was just so sad. Uh, oh, I'd love to see it. It was great. Unfortunately, that was the final performance. So I guess. Oh well, this maybe is they'll not, maybe they'll they should some, revive some it. Chicago theater will revive it. Was, it. It was packed. I mean, you know, small house, but you know, uh, and it got great reviews. So maybe well, there's a video of it or something. There well, be. Chicago has a fabulous theater scene, so I'm sure I love Chicago. So I love Chicago. I've been there only a few times, but I just like the vibe. Well, you're welcome anytime. Okay, I will remember that. Uh, and you're welcome in uh, central New Jersey. Let's see which of us is better able to resist the temptation. <laughs> Where is central New Jersey? Uh, I live in a, a college town. I live in Princeton. Oh, okay. All right. I have a colleague who's from Paramus. One of my best friends is from Paramus, David Yellen. Uh, They have an excellent shopping mall there. It's the hometown of uh, former world champion figure skater Elaine Zayak. Is that right? Who was known as the pride of Paramus. (laughs) Good trivia question. Who was known? (laughs) Pride for a (laughs) hundred. Um, so I'll try not to forget that. So thank you so much, Steve. Um, tell us where we can, now one place we could try to find your work is at the Chicago Tribune. As it happens, you have a little bit of a paywall there, right? It's not that easy to get. We do. We do. So people should sign up. They should support. People should subscribe. Good yes. journalism. Subscribe. Yes. And then they can you uh, have a peek at your oeuvre. Um, you they can also follow you on Twitter where? Uh, Steve Chapman 13. Okay, that's straightforward enough. Any any place else they should go? Uh, I'm syndicated, and you know, I don't know. Ah, so they can sneak around the paywall. Well, thirty or forty papers. I I I I don't know how many of them have a paywall. Probably most of them do. Yeah, but and there's probably a way we can get around this. Well, um, they can Google it. You can Google it. But again, you should you should sign up. You should pay the Chicago Tribune money so that uh, people like you can remain gainfully employed. Well, thanks a lot. I hope we'll do this again when the, the world needs it. Thank you. Okay. Great fun. Yeah, it was.